Thank you for joining us for Revive the Drive, a ministry of the Bethany Fellowship of Churches. We live in a world where time is a precious commodity. One of the avenues for reviving our souls is the necessary commute to and from the many places our schedules take us. As the wheels of the car begin to turn, join our panel and set the wheels of your mind in motion as you consider the significance and impact of theology on everyday life. Let's listen in as our pastors talk theology. Welcome to Revive the Drive. My name is Daniel Bennett. I'm the teaching pastor at Bethany Community Church, and I'm joined in the studio with uh, several friends here, Kevin Satter from Newcastle Bible Church. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Daniel. It is great to be with you today. Also, it's great to be with you also, Kevin. Thank you. Also, Rich Burkle from Bethany Baptist Church. Yeah, I'm excited to be with you guys talking about the Reformation. Honestly, Rich, you look a little less excited than Kevin Satter. <laughs> yeah, I always do. The people, always do. Not very many people look as excited as Kevin Satter <laughs> ever. So. And then also uh, Scott Brickle from East White Oak. It's good to, good to be with you too, Scott. I am so glad to be here, Daniel. Yeah. Great. Well, we, uh, we began talking about the Reformation in our last session of Revive the Drive, and in this session we're talking about the Reformation uh, the, the, you know the world at the eve, the church on the eve of the Reformation, at the, at the dawn of the Reformation. So uh, let's let's just begin here and let's talk a little bit about the state of the church because some people would look at the Reformation with with some sadness. They'd say, "Boy, you know, uh, we know the church is supposed to be one." Uh, Paul admonishes us in First Corinthians one that there be no divisions among us. Be we we united in the same mind and the same judgment and they say boy uh, that used to be the church then there's this reformation and now that the church is, is splintered uh, t- talk with me about that about that perception of the reformation yeah I think that's a, that's a key thing about how we define unity you know even it's it's relevant for all of us today in our churches uh, today but if unity isn't founded around the truth of Jesus Christ and his word, then it just becomes a cultural conformity and uh, that has no basis in in God's truth and God's design. And so I think at the end of the day, uh, our unity has to be determined by Scripture, not by some cultural authority or some uh, common shared preference, et cetera, something like that. Yeah, and yep. Jesus said that, uh, you know, in his high priestly prayer, he wants us to be one just as there is a unity within the Trinity. Mm-hmm. But just a couple of verses before that, he prays, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So right. that this unity has to have a basis in truth, not just some organizational conformity. It's also important to remember that the Reformers were not intending to create schism. They were wanting to reform the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. Luther never left the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church removed him. Right. You know, so it's not an issue where they were purposefully trying to create as much schism as possible, as much as it was that they were trying to recover the truths of the Scripture for the church. Yeah. You know, the gospel, it's called the gospel of peace. It brings peace between us and God. So it reconciles us to right relationship, and then it brings peace among God's children. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it, but it's it's a gospel of peace uh, because of the the truth of God being presented to our soul, uh, confronting us in our sin, and then revealing Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, sufficient, uh, crucified, risen again. 
And uh, so there, there are constant calls in the New Testament for us to be unified and calls for us to be uh, in peace with one another. But those calls are never, ever outside of the context of the truth of the gospel. So I, I think of you know James, he says, the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable. Mm-hmm. He actually even gives a priority to purity first, then peaceableness. I think of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, he says that God's people are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But then he goes on to say, well, there's one body. And one spirit, just as you're called with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So there's only one faith that can bring about this unity. And and clearly what was happening at the time of the Reformation was that Martin Luther's faith and the other Reformers' faith was not the same faith uh, that was being taught by the church. And they recognize that. And if there's going to be true unity, it's it's through the, the the one faith that's connected to the one Lord and the one Spirit. And then, you know, to think further about that passage in Ephesians, uh, he goes on to tell us to speak truth to one another um, uh, because we're members of one another. So put off falsehood, speak truth. And he says the very reason is that you're members of one another through this one body connected to this one God, by this one faith, this one baptism. And so part of our unity is expressed by speaking truth. And that's really what Martin Luther was driving at. He wanted unity, but he recognized it was truth that would bring that unity together. And that's that's still a principle that's so va- valuable and vital for us today. So the, the state of the church wasn't, uh, wasn't monolithically, uh, it, w- it wasn't the same, it, it certainly wasn't healthy. Um, in the time that we have for this session, I thought we could talk about two things regarding the the church at this at this period. One is just the intellectual state of the church, and there are kind of two dominant intellectual movements at the time. One was a little older than the other. One was kind of emerging. The first was was scholasticism, and I can't remember. My, I think this is uh, from Olson and his uh, his work on the the, the story of Christian theology. He says. Uh, scholasticism was was marked by a couple things. One, the elevation of human reason. Uh, secondly, the incorporation of philosophy with theology, and then finally, the the synthesizing of authorities. So, how did that that desire to synthesize authorities to elevate human reasons uh, reason? How did that affect the state of the church here at the the dawn of the Reformation? Well, one of the things that happened uh, that just a couple of centuries before the Reformation was Thomas Aquinas was saying that human reason is not subject to the effects of the fall, that our wills are fallen, but our reason is not. And therefore, reason can be pure enough as a means by which we can attain to truth, if we just have good enough uh, Mm. reason. Uh, External to uh, whether or not there's any final authority out there. So, you know, in fact, the Catholic Church is so uh, honoring of Thomas Aquinas that they kind of have these ideas of uh, our authority is Scripture, tradition, reason, the Pope, and the magisterium. Reason is one of those, hmm. you know, where the Reformers were saying, no, 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 the Scriptures alone. And and he wrote, his work was Summa Theologica, right? Yes. Like, so the, mm-hmm. the sum of theology and right. the desire was to synthesize 
with everything. his reason. Everything. Yes. Yeah, which is scholasticism. Exactly. It's easy when you're as brilliant as Aquinas to think that reason <laughs> is, a, is, a, <laughs> is is that. In, like he was, it said that he was at dinner one time and he just cries out, well, that settles the Manichees and he calls for his scribe and goes, oh, yeah, right, I'm at dinner. Uh, so <laughs> maybe a guy like that is kind of fond of reason. It's also helpful that there wasn't the body of 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 knowable things wasn't that great as there is now. So I doubt right. that there we can no write internet. Yeah, we can't. We can, there, I've conquered it. I, I, sure finished, I have finished the internet. Uh, you, there, there will be no more sumas of anything. Right. Hmm. Sure. So, sure. So, so I have a question. So if you oh, were a regular. Uh, <laughs> can we I agree, ask a question? We, we agree no questions, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. No, no. But it's a burning question. So, so if I was going to church at this time, hmm. how, how would that scholasticism actually show up in my Sunday mornings? How, how, would, that, how would that impact my Sunday mornings? Would, would it at yeah, that so, level? So this is a really great question. In fact, how it would affect it is that you would get no teaching at all. But there I, was virtually no preaching in the church on the eve of the Reformation. There was the celebration of the Mass, right. and once in a long while, you would get a homily, but not very often. See, isn't that fascinating? And the, the reason is because they said the, the great unwashed, they don't have the training or education necessary to be able to, to understand this stuff, so why talk to them about it? And Christianity itself was pretty synchristic. It depends on where you are, too, but there's a, yes. a great book called Religion and the Decline of Magic about this time period, too, and how it, 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 Christianity mm-hmm. sometimes wasn't all that different from animism or something like that. It was pretty— Yes, there know. was a lot of syncretism there, mm-hmm. yeah. And, yeah. And uh, one of the effects of the Reformation, then, uh, on the basis of, of Martin Luther's emphasis upon Scripture as well as the other Reformers— is that uh, the central place of the table, the, the place of what the Catholic Church would celebrate a mass, was moved and uh-huh. substituted with a pulpit. Because even, even the spatial experience that people have in a church communicates doctrine, communicates something about what's the most important. The priorities. And yeah. so that's why, in, in, again, most Protestant churches, the, um, the pulpit— where where the where word of God is taught is either central or it's uh, elevated in mm-hmm. some way to say this is what's central to our relationship and worship of God. Um, you know, You're stealing my thunder for uh-oh. the way in which uh, the Reformation changed culture. So okay. I shouldn't have That's asked a, the question. Right. Daniel yeah, has so lost sorry. complete That's a control. Great, <laughs> no, it's a great insight. How did it change church architecture? It, it really did yeah. in many ways, but yeah. that's one. That's neat. We we talked uh, in the last session about a couple of guys that uh, preceded Martin Luther uh, and the the nailing of the ninety five theses and one of those guys uh, was a guy by the name of John Huss and um, he his his main focus was that the authority by which we submit our lives is the Bible it's not councils it's not popes and and so that scholasticism put the authority in people very learned people. Uh, professional people, and John Huss uh, argued, no, it's not there, it is in the Scriptures. And so he began to teach the Bible in the language of the people, and uh, that angered the leaders of the church at that 
time to such a degree that they ultimately burned him at the stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- this is a matter of life and death. You know, this, this, these, these guys paved way through uh, marked courage uh, facing death, and, and, and there were death uh, attempts upon Martin Luther for a hundred years later, picking up the torch. And, and one of the stories that I think is kind of neat is Martin Luther in reflecting upon John Huss, who came a hundred years before him, uh, was accused of being a Hussite, and in, in his reflection, uh, he, he, Martin Luther uh, said this. He said, John Huss prophesied of me when he wrote from his prison in Bohemia, they will roast a goose now, and Huss means goose, so they will roast a goose now, but after a hundred years they will hear a swan sing, and him they will endure. And Martin Luther said, well, John Huss was, was talking about me. He understood sort of the divine appointment, uh, mm-hmm. almost like mm-hmm. Esther, for such a time as this, God mm-hmm. placed me here to be a, a swan to sing of the glories of God in the gospel. That's kind of a neat that is aspect. You know, on the eve of the Reformation, you also had the decline of the feudal economy. And so as they went into more of a market economy, there's going to be greater interest in literacy. People mm. are going to know how to write and how to communicate with one another way more than as a serf, just, you know, with your hoe doing your farming. Not that that's a bad thing. It's just it requires a little more uh, training to be able to engage in a new economy. Just like today, a new technology requires new training. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was a greater interest in being able to read. Uh, at the same time, the invention of the printing press gave more materials to be able to read. And so in the span of seven years, uh, right at the beginning of the Reformation, you have the Bible translated into German, English, and French. Um, that is and it's, so it's, key. That, that, is... that really unleashed the scriptures uh, on, on the continent. It, so, so you're describing there another intellectual movement. So there's scholasticism, and you're kind of describing humanism, right? There's yes. this, this movement to understand, uh, to return to antiquity, to have the original manuscripts, and to be able to to discern what, what the original text said. That was a concern that scholast, scholastics hadn't been concerned with, and now, right. now there, is, there is an interest in that. Yeah, back to the sources, right? That was the cry of the humanist uh, movement at that time. And I, I find it fascinating, actually, that so Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door, Wittenberg, 1517, right? October 31st. Yep. Well, it was just a year earlier that Erasmus had, had translated the scriptures into Greek, or actually had given compiled the, the compiled Greek, New Greek New Testament from New manuscripts. Testament. Yeah. yeah, from manuscripts. So it was actually that Greek uh, text that allowed Luther to get behind the Latin Vulgate uh, yes. of the time. Mm-hmm. So, so that that was a significant, significant momentum. Yeah. Let me move along here a little bit, guys. Uh, theologically, uh, uh, David McCulloch, who's written a book on the Reformation, would would argue that the uh, whole system of the medieval Western Church sat upon two pillars. He says it's it's the Mass or the sacramental system and and the Pope. So the sacraments and the Pope are these two pillars that the medieval church sits upon. Help me understand, what, what exactly was the sacramental system, and why was that so important for the authority and the role of the church in the medieval Western church? Is that too broad of a question? <laughs> so the, yeah, you know, the sacramental, Yes, we're talking about the sacramental system, the, the means by which there's this idea that the church has this 
this deposit of God's grace, mm-hmm. and now they have the ability to decide how that that grace is dispensed. It's dispensed mm-hmm. through the sacramental through the sacraments. How does that how does that help them maintain power and authority? So there's a treasury of merit that the church has by virtue of the saints having lived saintly lives, mm-hmm. and that that treasury can be dispensed, and this leads to the Pope's power, mostly by the Bishop of Rome, but also through his emissaries, uh, bishops and priests. Um, That treasury of merit uh, is infinite in the Church's hands, but it dispenses that treasury as it desires. And so the whole idea of doing penance was a way in which the church said, this is how you access the treasury of merit. This is how you can receive the righteousness you need in order to yeah. so, merit so, salvation? Yeah, so the you know, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, they would say that, and this is where we'll get to the words alone when we get to the five solas, uh, the Catholic Church doesn't say that uh, you know it's not by Christ's death that we get a permanent salvation. But what they do say is that there's temporary issues mm-hmm. that can only be solved by our works. Now, ultimately, for the guy that's sitting there uh, at church, he can't distinguish between temporary and permanent. It feels pretty permanent to him. Right. Um, so the so those those are those, those really are a distinction without a difference. I just say that for anybody from EWTN that's listening. <laughs> right, right. And <laughs> and then also it created another mediator besides Jesus between God and the people. And and so you had to go through this other mediator in some way. Mm-hmm. And that mediator was uh, the, the church, church or the yeah. pope or you know the uh, other uh, authorities, the priests in, in that particular village. And so you, a, a person could not hear the gospel and themselves access God adequately or completely. They needed to go to this other source in order to find grace that would allow them to be righteous in God's sight, to be accepted. And so that, that of course, is a huge, huge uh, change uh, or, or alteration of the gospel, where Jesus would say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Uh, take my yoke upon you, for my load is easy, my burden is light. And, and so the invitation of God upon the person is very direct versus... Uh, indirect through another authority, and of course, we can see how all abu- how many abuses can come whenever there's an intermediary authority who has the power to supply people with what they need. Whether it's government and a welfare system, all of a sudden there's going to be huge abuse in order to receive what we need from an intermediary. Mm-hmm. And and God God says, I'm going to give it to you freely, directly. Come to me. Hmm. So Luther attacks the sacramental system. He doesn't realize, perhaps, he's attacking the church, but he's attacking one of the pillars that the church stands upon. You can't have the sacramental system apart from the Pope, and so he's he's attacking the very foundations of the church. And I think you guys have already done a great job kind of talking about the relevancy for today. There's one comment, Scott, that you made I want to just close with and kind of come back to this, and, and we'll touch on this, I'm sure, more as we go forward. You said, you know, Luther wasn't planning on on leaving the church, he wasn't trying to um, uh, to 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 do away with his Catholicism or right. being part of the church. 
you know, Saint Fran, uh, Pope Francis recently was was talking about Luther and called him. I think he called him a, a preacher of the gospel and mm. made that same point. Mm-hmm. So are you and the Pope making the same point about Luther? And uh, how would yeah. how would you say what would you say to a person who says, you know what? The, the Reformation was was overblown. They they were addressing some real problems at this time, but the Reformation is over in, in some senses. I I think I heard Martin Luther turn over in his grave when Post Francis <laughs> said that. Um, <laughs> because I don't think that what Luther called the gospel and what Pope Francis calls the gospel are the same thing. You can use the same words and not mean the same thing by them. That's right. And what what Lu- what Luther meant by the gospel is that a righteousness from God uh, is found by faith, from faith to faith. Romans one seventeen, for the just will live by faith. Mm-hmm. That that kind of was a, the touchstone for Martin Luther. I it's all it's always difficult. Um, I won't get into the exegesis of Pope Francis, but it's always hard to understand precisely what he means because there are times where even the most ardent supporters of Pope Francis recognize he's purposely vague. Well, we don't know what he means. Right. So so, so I don't think I'm saying the same thing as yeah. Pope Francis. Okay, well, I'm sure we're going to get more into that as, as we go on. Thanks, guys. A great discussion, and I hope this is edifying to our listeners as uh, we revive your drive. Hi.